Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. We are continuing our study on a closer look at 12 Ordinary Men. And I am working on what the subtitle is going to be because this study truly is something that allows us to see how these 12 ordinary men have affected our lives today. And I'm going to add that some type of way in the subtitle because I think it has gotten a little bit more interesting than just about their lives. So the last time that we were together, we actually uh, were discussing James. So I want to bring that back to your remembrance. James never did actually take first place among the apostles, except in one regard. And it's not always the, the most popular, but he was the first to actually be martyred. James is a much more significant figure, however, than we really might consider. Based on the little we know about him, in two of the lists of apostles, his name comes immediately after Peter's. Now we know Peter was what the leader of the apostles um, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about Peter. So if you turn to Mark's Gospel really quick, Mark's Gospel the third chapter and if we look at verses 16 through 19 and I'm not going to really read the whole thing because this is sort of um, review. It says he meaning Jesus and I'm sharing this out of the Message Bible by the way. He climbed a mountain and invited those he wanted with him. They climbed together. He settled on 12 and designated them apostles. The plan was that they would be with him and he would send them out to proclaim the word and give them authority to banish demons. These are the 12. Simon, Jesus later named him Peter, meaning rock. James, son of Zebedee, John, brother of James, and then it goes on. I, we already are very familiar with all 12 of them. The point here is that James's name appears right after whose? Peter's. And that tells us something. It's a good reason we can really assume that he was a strong leader and probably second in influence after Peter. Now, of course, James also figures prominently in the close inner circle of three because it was he, Peter, and John. They were the only ones that Jesus permitted to go with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And we know that whole story. He didn't want any unbelievers anywhere near him because he understood the importance of that. So he allowed James to be in that group. So obviously James was somebody that was prominent even though we don't hear his name a lot. In Mark's Gospel, the fifth chapter, now you're already in Mark, so just switch over really quick to the fifth chapter. If we look at verse 37, and I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. So Mark 5, verse 37 says, And he allowed, he meaning Jesus, allowed no one to go with him as witnesses except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. If we look at it in the Message Bible, it's actually verses 37 to 40. It says, he permitted no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John. They entered the leader's house and pushed their way through the gossips, looking for a story and neighbors bringing in casseroles. Jesus was abrupt. Why all this busybody grief and gossip? 
the child isn't dead, she's sleeping. Provoked to sarcasm, they told him he didn't know what he was talking about. Now, I really like that translation because that is something we could relate to now. You know, say if you're believing God for something and you, you know, you go to somebody's house, maybe that particular person might be, you know, having a challenge. So they're not up and around and you go there to help. But there are a whole bunch of busybodies around, not there to really stand in faith, but just to kind of like gossip and see what's going on. So I really like that translation because it makes it more something that we could relate to even today, which I think is group. Now, good. Now, the same group of three people witnessed Jesus's glory on where? The Mount of Transfiguration. And there you can go to Matthew's Gospel, the 17th chapter, and just look at verse 1. And I'm going to share that with you out of the message. The last time we were together, we talked about it out of the Amplified, but I'm going to share it out of the message tonight. And it says, six days later, three of them saw that glory. Jesus took Peter and the brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out, right before their eyes. Sunlight poured from his face. His clothes were filled with light. Then they realized that Moses and Elijah were also there in deep conversation with him. James was among four disciples who questioned Jesus privately on the Mount also of Oh, no, on the Mount of Olives, sorry. If you turn with me to Mark, go back to Mark. Yeah, we're going to do a little flipping back and forth. Now I want you to look at Mark 13. Mark's Gospel, the 13th chapter, verses 3 and 4. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, he again, meaning Jesus, opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be fulfilled? Now, the interesting part about this is this is very much like many of us today. We are believing God for one thing or another. If you're a believer, you've got something that you're believing God for. And you really want to be just like they were. You want the answer and you want to know when. You know... <laughs> We are to pray as we know, but there is no time capsule where we can pray today and know for certain when the answer to our prayer is to come. We have to exercise our faith. We know that, but we still are very much like these ordinary men because we want to know, well, okay, when is it? I've already waited X amount of time. I want to know now. So this really kind of gets us to think about it because remember they were not born again we are we have the entire power of the godhead within us so that should really kind of put us just at peace and at ease knowing that he he's going to answer whatever it is we ask him for as long as it's in line with the word and we just have to trust him that it's going to be in his perfect timing not when we think so in other words we don't we need to grow up a little bit and we can learn not to act like they did at that time so in the message bible it says later as he was sitting on mount olives in full view of the temple peter james john and andrew got him off by himself and asked tell us when is it going to happen what sign will we get that things are coming to a head. Again, they're looking for a sign instead of just trusting that it's being taken care of. Now that's something that's different from whom? 
it's different from Andrew. Because remember, Andrew just trusted that Jesus had it all taken care of. He just knew, no matter what, I'll just bring him to Jesus. He didn't need that constant assurance of when is it going to be and how are you going to do it. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to start breaking down their personalities so that you can see, oh, I don't want to be like this one or I want to be more like that one so that we can see certain characteristics and see where we are. It kind of helps us recognize some things that perhaps we need to tweak. Would you agree with that? Okay, I think so. And James again was included with John and Peter when the Lord urged those three to pray with him privately in Gethsemane. We all know that. Um, you're already in Mark. Just go right over real quickly to Mark 14, the 14th chapter. And we're going to look at verse 33. He, meaning Jesus, took Peter and James and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, extremely anguished at the prospect of what was to come. The Message Bible says they came to an area called Gethsemane. Jesus told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. He told them, I feel bad enough right now to die. Stay here and keep vigil with me. And we talked about the importance of that, how, again, we know that Jesus, he went through every single thing any of us could ever go through in the earth realm. And this is a perfect example. So whenever we have any of our brothers or sisters who may be challenged with going through a challenging time, where they feel a little distressed or depressed, that's when we need to pray for them, not judge them. And there's a lot going on right now in the earth realm where people, and I'm talking about believers specifically, do have a tendency to be judgmental. And we really have to kind of watch that. We can learn that as well, not to do it. So as a member of this little small inner circle, James was privileged to witness Jesus' power in the raising of the dead. He saw his glory when Jesus was transfigured. He saw Christ's sovereignty in the way the Lord unfolded the future to them on the Mount of Olives. And he saw the Savior's agony in the garden. All of these events must have strengthened his faith immensely and equipped him for the suffering and martyrdom he himself would eventually face. If there's a key word that applies to the life of the Apostle James, that word is passion. From the little we know about him, it's obvious that he was a man of intense fervor and intensity. In fact, Jesus gave James and John a nickname, <laughs> Boanerges, Sons of Thunder. Now some people, it depends on how you look at this and how you study it, some people feel that he gave them that name because they were very useful because it has been established that they were the younger two of the apostles. And how people are coming to that conclusion is a lot of times you'll read scripture and you'll hear where their mother, who was a Jewish mother, um, she at one point actually even goes to Jesus and she's asking really a favor of Jesus for her sons. If they were grown men, like, you know, 30 years old, their mother wouldn't be going to do their bidding for them. Um, the other thing is, 
they were among some of the other apostles, but they especially always bickering over who was the greatest. That's kind of childlike and a little immature, no matter how you look at it, even though we do have grown adults that are 60 and 70 still doing that. But, you know, during that time, it still was a little, you know, immature. So that's why we're also looking at it like, okay, they were definitely, definitely very, very young. So anyway, they were given that particular nickname, uh, Sons of Thunder. Now, that defines James's personality in very vivid terms. He was very zealous, thunderous, passionate, and fervent. That is who he was. Mark, who records that Jesus called James and John sons of thunder, includes that fact in his list of the twelve, mentioning it in the same way that he notes that Simon was named Peter. Turn to Mark 3, and we're going to just look at verse 17 really quickly. Mark 3, verse 17. Actually, we already read that. Put that in your notes, because we're not even going to go back to do that again. It's just there, he names them the sons of thunder. Okay. Now, we don't know how often Jesus used his nickname for James and John. That's a little significant, because we know full well that he used Peter as a way to get Peter to, to mold him into doing what he wanted him to do. Like we discussed, when he called him Simon, that meant he did something that he shouldn't have done. If he called him Peter, then he was happy with what he did. When it came to the Sons of Thunder, however, that was never, it wasn't actually implied that way. So we don't think that the name or the nickname was used in that particular way. Um, it definitely, when it came to Peter, Jesus used his nickname in a way to encourage and shape Peter's character toward a rock-like steadfastness. Steadfastness, But Boranges seems to have been bestowed on the sons of Zebedee to chide them when they allowed their naturally feverish temperaments to get out of hand, just like youthful teenagers, basically. Um, perhaps the Lord even used it for a humorous effect while applying it as a gentle admonishment. So he he in no way, shape, or form, it doesn't appear, used it the same way as he did with Simon Peter. What little we know about James underscores the fact that he had a fiery, vehement disposition. While Peter was quietly bringing individuals to Jesus, James was wishing he could call down fire from heaven and destroy whole villages of people. Now, do we know people who seem to be sort, you know, sort of that way? Like you may find a Christian who's nice and calm and mild, and you know, and then you'll find somebody who's like a bull in a china cabinet, so to speak. Okay, well, that seems the difference between Andrew and James right off the bat. Even the fact that James was the first to be martyred and that his martyrdom was accomplished by no less a figure than Herod suggests that James was not a passive or subtle man, but rather he had a style that stirred things up so, so that he made deadly enemies very rapidly. Now, if we just think about it, he sounds in some ways very similar to who? Okay, all y'all looking at me in this long... Huh? Doesn't he have some similarities to... Okay, does he sound like Andrew to you? No. Okay, who does he sound like, perhaps? Peter. Peter, thank you. So that could be why in the list of the apostles, it is Peter and then James. 
because it could also be that they were very, very similar in characteristics. Okay, okay, you guys are with me, all right? <laughs> all right. Um, even the fact, oh, I'll do it this way. There is a legitimate place in spiritual leadership for people who have thunderous personalities. That's important for us to know. Because sometimes, again, we look at different personalities, we look at different people, and we do, without realizing it, or being really authentic, we are judging them. Yes. And we start picking apart, well, why did they do so-and-so and so? How come so-and-so didn't do this, and blah, 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 blah. There is a reason for every person to be the way they are. And when you think about it, praise the Lord. Because if we were all the same, it would be very boring. It would be like living in the Stepford Life community where everybody does the same thing. You know, everybody is different. And God uses that to his honor and glory. Elijah was a type of person very similar to James. Okay, Elijah was actually James's role model. That's who he really aspired to want to be like. James thought he was following Elijah when he pleaded for fire from heaven. Turn with me to Nehemiah 13, because Nehemiah was similarly passionate. If we look at Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, we're going to look at verses 23 through 27. And I want you to see this. So turn there and let me know that you're there by saying amen. Amen. Okay. Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, verses 23 through 27. We're gonna, I'm going to share it with you first out of the easy-to-read version, because I think that's a very, very good way of, of, um, of, of getting the gist of it. So starting with verse 23, it says, In those days I also noticed that some Jewish men had married women from the countries of Ashdod, Ainan, and Moab, or Moab. And half of the children from those marriages didn't know how to speak the Jewish language. They spoke the language of Ashdod, Amon, and Moab. So I told the men <laughs> that they were wrong. I said bad things to them. I hit some of them and I pulled out their hair. I forced them to make a promise in God's name. I said to them, you must not marry the daughters of these foreigners. Don't let their daughters marry your sons, and don't let your daughters marry the sons of these foreigners. You know that marriages like this cause Solomon to sin. In all the many nations, there was not a king as great as Solomon. God loved him and made him king over the whole nation of Israel. But even Solomon was made to sin because of foreign women. And now we hear that you also are doing this terrible sin. You are not being true to our God. You are marrying foreign women. Now that in of itself, we could go on and talk about that for a long time. But I'm going to share it with you out of the message because it cuts to the chase a little bit easier. And it says, also in those days, I saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. All they knew was the language of Ashdod or some other tongue. So I took these men to task. 
gave them a piece of my mind, even slapped some of them and jerked them by the hair. I made them swear to God, don't marry your daughters to their sons and don't let their daughters marry your sons and don't you yourselves marry them. Didn't Solomon, the king of Israel, sin because of women just like these? Even though there was no king quite like him and God loved him and made him king over all Israel, foreign women were his downfall. Do you call this obedience, engaging in this extensive evil, showing yourselves faithless to God by marrying foreign wives? This is very interesting to me. <laughs> that is still going on in nations all over the world right now. It is still going on in our very own country. Many of us, because many of us here are over the age of 25, okay, can remember where there could not be interracial marriage even in this country. So the point is, there is still a lot, you know, and you see it, you see it constantly, you can even see it on social media, where people still have a challenge when people of the same race are not coupled together. They, there's still a challenge with it. I mean, I remember it wasn't even that long ago, I think it was last year, it might have been 2017, where they got annoyed with Cheerios for putting on the commercial where it was an interracial couple. And this is, we're living in 27, you know, we're in 2019, it should not be. It is still very real. And for some people, and I'm not going to get political, but this is why some people do not like the whole Make America Great Again, because they feel as if that's a dog whistle for making America a different way, not necessarily great. So, again, nothing is new under the sun. It is the same thing. So John the Baptist, he's another example of someone who had a fiery temperament, too. James apparently was cut from similar fab fabric as these men. He was outspoken, intense, and impatient with evildoers. There is nothing inherently wrong, really, with such zeal. Remember that Jesus himself made a whip and did what? He cleansed the temple. If you go to John's Gospel, the second chapter... John's Gospel, the second chapter, and let's look at verse 17. And it says, I'm going to share it out of the Amplified first. It says, his disciples remembered that it is written in the scriptures, zeal, which here's the qualifier for zeal, love and concern for your house and its honor will consume me. Now, if we look at it in the Message Bible, it says, Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture, zeal for your house consumes me. So again, Jesus himself was acting how? You could call it aggressive, you could call it fiery. He wasn't just sitting idly by and thinking all is well. James of all people, well, you know what? Look at this. Turn with me because I'm going to give you another example. Turn with me to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9. And if we look at it in 
the Amplified. It says, for the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the mocking insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And if we look at it in the message, it says, I love you more than I can say, because I'm madly in love with you. They blame me for everything they dislike about you. And that's true, because if someone, you will find, if someone dislikes you, they're going to dislike, you know, your friends. It just kind of like trickles down in that respect. Now, James, of all people, however, knew what it was like to be eaten up with zeal for the Lord. Much of what James saw Jesus do probably helped really stoke his zeal, such as when the Lord rebuked the Jewish leaders, when he cursed the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and when he confronted and destroyed demonic powers. Zeal is a virtue when it is truly zeal for righteousness sake. That's why I like the Amplified Version, because it explains to us what zeal is. Zeal is not just enthusiasm. Like if you look at it in modern day terms and you think of the word zeal, you think, okay, they're just enthusiastic. The Amplified is telling us zeal means love and concern. There is a distinct difference. So we need to keep that in mind. But sometimes zeal is less than righteous. Hmm. Zeal apart from knowledge can be very damning. Turn with me to Romans the 10th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 2. Romans 10, verse 2. If we look at it in the New King James Version, it says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. If we look at it in the Amplified, excuse me, Excuse me, I can feel that coming. Thank you. If we look at it in the Amplified, which again has the qualifiers, it says, For I testify about them that they have a certain enthusiasm for God, but not in accordance with correct and vital knowledge about Him and His pur purposes. If we look at it in the message, because that really, really breaks it down, it says, Believe me, friends, all I want for Israel is what's best for Israel. Salvation, nothing less. I want it with all my heart and pray to God for it all the time. I readily admit that the Jews are impressively energetic regarding God, but they are doing everything exactly backward. Now, we can say that about Christians today, actually. <laughs> they don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right, that is salvation, is God's business. And a most flourishing business it is. Right across the street, they set up their own salvation shops and noisily hawk their wares. After all these years of refusing to really deal with God on his terms, insisting instead on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. Now to me, again, I find that extremely interesting. Why do I find it interesting? Because we have churches who are doing that right now today. Everything is about what they have set up. They have real marketing plans. And the whole point of the matter is, I thought, and the word says, 
that the whole deal is we're supposed to do what? Be ambassadors for Christ. We're supposed to be good in getting the good news of Jesus. If we lift up the name of Jesus, what's supposed to happen? He will draw all men unto him. So it's not about what marketing thing we can come up with. I mean, and I'm not knocking marketing, so don't go out and say, oh, she, but you get my drift. It's not about how many t-shirts we can sell that say thus and so. It's about lifting up the name of Jesus. And when you get to a point where you forget that, then you're no better than what happened back during the same time. Where people, because what if you remember the story, what got Jesus so upset that he came in with the whip in the temple was because people were selling, because this was back during the time where everybody had to, to give sacrifices. So they would give a sacrifice of, a, of an unspoiled or unspotted lamb or a sacrifice of a dove or a sacrifice of something. So what did the people do? They came up with a marketing plan and they went into the temple and said, oh, come here, come here, buy your dove here, buy your lamb here. And that was what Jesus hated because that was not what it should be about. And that's what we always have to be cautious of. We can never get to a point where we forget just the purity of sharing the love of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. And when we do that, then we're doing what we're supposed to and God acknowledges it and honors it. So it's important that, yes, if we are zealous, that we are zealous with knowledge and that we are conducting ourselves the way the word tells us that we should. Amen? Because zeal mixed with insensitivity is often <laughs> cruel. It really, really is. Whenever zeal dis disintegrates into uncontrolled passion, it can actually be deadly. And James sometimes tended to let such misguided zeal get the better of him. Two incidents in particular illustrate this. One is the episode where James wanted to call down fire. The other is the time James and John enlisted their mother's help to lobby for the highest seats in the kingdom. Can you imagine? Now, let's look at both of these little incidents individually. Um, for, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter, and we're going to look at verses 51 through 56. Here we're going to really get a glimpse of why James and John were known as the sons of thunder. So I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. So this is Luke 9, starting with verse 51, and it says, Now when the time was approaching for him, meaning Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went into a Samaritan village to make arrangements for him. But the people would not welcome him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? But he turned and rebuked them, and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they journeyed on to another village. Now, if you look at um, verse 53, but the people would not welcome him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. There was religious conflict between the Samaritans 
and the Jews. The people of Samaria were generally inhospitable all the time to Jews and did not offer overnight accommodations to those who were traveling to Jerusalem to participate in religious events. I mean, I hate to say some of that still goes on today. If we look at this in the Message Bible, it just cuts to the chase and it says, when it came close to the time for his ascension, because that's important for us to understand what time period we're talking about, okay? So this is close to Jesus' ascension. He gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead. They came to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his hospitality. But when the Samaritans learned that his destination was Jerusalem, they refused hospitality. When the disciples James and John learned of it, they said, Master, do you want to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Jesus turned on them, of course not, and they traveled on to another village. This definitely, though, lets you know exactly how James and John acted in areas. It was significant that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. That is important to know. Even though the shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem went right through Samaria, most Jews traveling between those two places deliberately took a route that required them to travel many miles out of the way through the barren desert of Peria. In other words, they instead of just going the shortest distance between two points, they didn't want to have to put up with what they were going to have to put up with. So they went the long way, all the way around, just to get to where it was that they needed to go. And they did this requiring them to cross the Jordan twice. I mean, think about that. Just so that they could avoid Samaria. Now, the Samaritans, this is interesting, were a mixed race offspring of Israelites from the northern kingdom. When Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the most prominent and influential people in their tribes were taken into captivity and the land was resettled with pagans and foreigners who were loyal to the Assyrian king. If you turn to 2 Kings, turn there now, 2 Kings, we're going to look at chapter 17, verses 24 through 34. And I'm only going to share this with you out of the Amplified. 2 Kings, the 17th chapter, verses 24 and 34. And starting with 24, it says, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kathia and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons, people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, when they began to live there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations whom you have sent into exile and settled in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and they are killing them because they do not know the manner of worship demanded by the God of the Lamb. Then the king of Assyria commanded, take back to Samaria some of the priests whom you brought from there, and have him go and live there. 
and have him teach the people the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had exiled from Samaria came back and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear and worship the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses, shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they lived. The men of Babylon, many Succoth Banath, the men of Cuth, made of Nergal, the men of Hamath, made Ashima, the Avites made Nihaz and Tartic, and the Sepharites burned their children in the fire. Wow of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord yet served their own gods, following the custom of the nations from among whom had been sent into exile. To this day, they act in accordance with their former pagan customs. They do not really fear the Lord, nor do they obey their statutes and ordinances, nor the law, nor the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons, descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Now, that's really, really long. and has all those funny looking names and everything in it. But here's the key. And here's the part that when I read this, I find most interesting. You will have some people who will show up and they will come to every single church, every, you know, every church service, every Bible study. They'll go to uh, this ministry, that ministry, all over the place. You would think they are the most spiritual people you ever could see. Because anytime there's something with the word, you see their face there. However, are they truly following the word and doing what the word has commanded them to do? Or are they just doing that, but they're still making their own gods? Because here's the thing that people do not realize. You can make a god out of a TV program. Okay? Meaning you can be a person that it's like, oh, such and such a thing is coming on. I can't miss that, so I have to see that. Or I have to do this on. And without realizing it, you are actually making it an idol or a god in your own life. And we already know that our God is a jealous God. Amen. And he will have no gods before him. So we have to be careful. But the thing is, all of these things are put in scripture and they're really put there to kind of pull our coat to make sure we don't fall into the same things that people who live before us do. So that's what I find extremely interesting about that. So I mean hopefully you got something out of it. I know that I definitely, definitely did. Um, from the very beginning the interloping pagans <laughs> did not prosper in the land because they did not fear the Lord. Just like Believers who are not, when it says fear, fear meaning really trusting God Amen. with their lives, living their life with purpose for him and before him. Yes, keeping him reverentially in their mind, but really, really, really loving him and trusting him with everything that they do. Okay? When a person does that, believe me, God always honors it. But you will have people, again, like I said, who just, you know, they kind of, I don't want to say they're playing church, but they're not 100% all in. And that has been since the beginning of time, too. 
And these interloping pagans, that's who they were, and they did not prosper in the land because they did not fear the Lord. So the king of Assyria sent back one of the priests whom he had taken captive in order to teach people how to fear the Lord. So we were already in 2 Kings 17. So now all I need you to do is just drop down to verse 28. So 2 Kings 17th chapter, verse 28 in the Amplified says, So one of the priests whom they had exiled from Samaria came back and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear and worship the Lord. Okay, good. So we got that. Now what I want you to do is the result, and that's the thing. This is also extremely important, so this is why I want to point it out. The result was a religion that blended elements of truth and paganism. That's happening today very much so, too. You will see religions, which to me are always forms of bondage, where they're blending truth a little bit and paganism a little bit. Again, we have to be careful. That's why we really, really do study the Word so that we don't fall prey to those types of things. Now, you're already in 2 Kings. You're already in the 17th chapter. Just drop down now to verse 33. And verse 33 says, They feared the Lord, in the Amplified, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, following the custom of the nations from among whom they had been sent into exile. If we look at it in the message, it says, they honored and worshiped God, but not exclusively. They also appointed all sorts of priests, regardless of qualification, to conduct a variety of rites at the local fertility shrines. They honored and worshiped God, but they also kept up their devotions to the old gods of the places they had come from. That says a lot too, because once you find out the truth in the word, you're supposed to do what? Make whatever mid-course correction that you need to do so that you can go forward and receive all that God has for you. Sometimes people get caught up in the old traditions of whatever religion they were bound to and grew up in, and then when they find out the truth, they still keep one foot over in the old traditions instead of moving forward with the truth. And then they get frustrated and want to know how come they don't have God's best because of the choice that they made when they did that. That is still happening today. I promise you that. In other words, these people that we just read about and the people that I'm talking about, they still claim to worship Jehovah as God, but they founded their own priesthood built their own temple, and devised a sacrificial system of their own making. In short, they made a new religion based in large part on pagan traditions. The Samaritan's religion is a classic example of what happens when the authority of scripture is reduced to human tradition. That is a powerful sentence. The Samaritan's religion, I'm repeating it, is a classic example of what happens when the authority of scripture is reduced to human tradition. Another way of saying it is when you don't allow the word of God to be the final authority in your life and you just go on whatever tradition or whatever the world is telling you you should go on, 
you run into a big challenge. The word has got to be everything that you're basing your life on. So the original site of the Samaritan's temple was on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. The temple was built during the time of Alexander the Great, and it had been destroyed about 125 years before the birth of Christ. So Gerizim was still deemed holy by the Samaritans. However, they were convinced the mountain was the only place where God could properly be worshipped. That is what the Samaritan woman declared to Jesus in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter and the 20th verse. So John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verse 20, in the Amplified says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place where one ought to worship is in Jerusalem at the temple. The Living Bible says, But say, tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? And then the message puts it this way. Oh, so you're a prophet? Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worship God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Huh. Obviously, this was one of the chief points under dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans. To this day, a small group of Samaritans' descendants still worship on Mount Gerizim because they feel they must. No different that then there are still small groups of Christians who believe that women cannot pray unless their heads are covered or unless they wear a prayer cloth or, you know, like the doilies work. They can be really nice, but whatever. They have to do that. There are some people who believe that you must pray on your knees. If you do not, then your prayer, I guess, is not heard or it's not as valuable as if you're on your knees. There are some people who truly believe that you have to pray at a certain time of day and they are very serious about it. And I'm not talking about different, uh, I'm talking about actual Christians at this point. So I'm not even talking about other religions, but there are Christians who believe this. And the good news is, None of that really applies. We have been set free. It's just that unfortunately some people still don't know that. So many of the original Israelites' descendants who later returned to Samaria from captivity were also the product of intermarriage with pagans. So the culture of Samaria really suited them perfectly. Of course, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as a mongrel race of their religion. They did. They just didn't want to have anything to do with them. And they considered their religion to be a mongrel religion. That is why during the time of Christ, such pains were taken to avoid all travel through Samaria. The entire region was deemed unclean. But in this instance, Jesus's face was set for Jerusalem. And as he had done before, and we can look in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, you're already there, back up to verse 4. It just says, really simple, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, he went through Samaria to show that he is the Savior of all people. 
okay? No one is left out of Paul. And we also have established that Samaria was centrally located between Judea, which was south, and Galilee, which was north. The Jews despised Samaritans because they were Jews who had intermarried with non-Jews and followed, this is terrible, uh, they followed a religion that they considered to be uh, just completely something that they couldn't accept. And most Jews traveled out of their way to avoid Samaria. And it, it just gets to me because this is stuff that goes on again right now today. But Jesus chose the more direct route and he was determined that he was going to go through Samaria. Along the way, he and his followers would need places to eat and spend the night. I mean, come on, they didn't have Holiday Inn <laughs> or something along the way, so they needed that. Uh, okay. Um, since the party traveling with Jesus was fairly large, he sent messengers ahead to arrange accommodations. And I am going to have to pause because, wow, I actually went over time. Well, we started a little bit late. So guess what? We will end there and uh, we'll pick it up the next time that we're together. Even though next week you're going to see part two of the movie. Okay, and you don't want to miss part two of the movie. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.